Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! The climate crisis, the curtailment of reproductive rights, authoritarianism, these threats aren't looming. They're here now. If you believe Democracy Now!'s reporting on these issues is essential, please sign up for a monthly gift of $5, $10, or even $20. Go to democracynow.org to make your donation right away. Oh, and your gift will be matched dollar for dollar by a generous donor. Thank you so much. This is Democracy Now! Nargis Mohammadi is a woman, a human rights advocate, and a freedom fighter. One of Iran's most prominent human rights activists, Nargis Mohammadi, has won this year's Nobel Peace Prize, but she will not be able to receive the prize in Oslo personally since she's in prison in Tehran. We'll get the response. We'll also get an update on the civil fraud trial of Donald Trump. No matter how powerful you are, no matter how much money you think you may have, no one is above the law. And it is my responsibility and my duty and my job to enforce it. The law is both powerful and fragile. And today in court, we will prove our case. We'll also speak to an attorney suing Columbia University and its affiliated hospitals on behalf of some 300 more patients who say they were sexually assaulted by former Columbia University gynecologist Robert Haddon over a span of decades, while Columbia, they say, shielded the sexual predator. And we'll look at the largest strike of healthcare workers in U.S. history. Yeah, we're out here because we want the world to know that Kaiser's being unfair to us. They're not treating us right. We're working through the pandemic. We're working through hard times. We're understaffed, underpaid. They're not giving us what we need to take care of our patients properly. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. President Biden's defending his decision to waive 26 federal laws in South Texas in order to speed construction of the U.S.-Mexico border wall. Biden's move to advance a central policy of former President Trump's platform has prompted condemnation from immigrant rights, environmental and indigenous activists. At the White House Thursday, a reporter asked Biden why he reversed his campaign pledge that, quote, there will not be another foot of wall constructed in my administration, he said. One question on the border wall. The border wall, the money was appropriated for the border wall. I tried to get them to reappropriate, to redirect that money. They didn't. They wouldn't. And in the meantime, there's nothing under the law other than they have to use the money for what was appropriate. I can't stop that. Do you believe the border wall works? No. Democratic Congressmember Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez slammed Biden's decision, writing, quote, a wall does nothing to deter people who are fleeing poverty and violence from coming to the United States. You do not risk your life or your children's lives going through the Darien Gap or traversing hundreds of miles of desert if you have any other options. Walls only serve to push migrants into more remote areas, increasing their chances of death, AOC said. Meanwhile, Secretary of State Antony Blinken, Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas and Attorney General Merrick Garland were in Mexico City Thursday meeting with Mexican President Andres Manuel López Obrador, who condemned the border wall. 
This authorization for the construction of the wall is a step backwards. It doesn't solve the problem. It doesn't solve the problem. We have to address the causes. Homeland Security Secretary Mayorkas announced the U.S. will resume deportation flights directly to Venezuela, threatening Venezuelan asylum seekers with harsher consequences if they cross the U.S.-Mexico border. For years, the U.S. government did not regularly deport Venezuelans because of tensions between Washington and Caracas. Thousands continue to flee Venezuela due to an economic catastrophe that's been largely worsened by U.S. sanctions. New York City Mayor Eric Adams is on a four-day Latin American tour to discourage would-be asylum seekers from trying to reach New York. Speaking from Mexico City Thursday, Adams warned the American dream could turn into a nightmare. We are at capacity, and many people believe when you enter New York City, you're going to automatically have a job. You automatically are going to be living in a hotel, uh, and there's just a, a, a climate that's there, and it's just not a reality. Mayor Adams will also travel to Ecuador and Colombia and visit the treacherous Darien Gap that many migrants are forced to brave on their journey to the U.S.-Mexico border. Adams' trip comes two days after he asked a judge to suspend New York City's 42-year-old policy of providing shelter to anyone who seeks it. Immigrant rights groups blasted the move, with the Legal Aid Society warning, quote, street homelessness would balloon to a level unseen in our city since the Great Depression, unquote. Asylum seekers in New York have already been facing barriers getting basic assistance. I come from Honduras, and I came here because they killed a brother and a nephew of mine. So I was afraid, and I came here. The truth is, I was waiting 24 hours for them to give me some clothes, but ultimately nothing came of it. Ukraine says 51 people were killed and six others wounded Thursday as a Russian missile struck a store in a cafe in a village in the northeastern Kharkiv region. President Volodymyr Zelensky said the Russian assault was no accident. The Russian military could not have been unaware of where they were hitting, and it was not a blind strike. People gathered there for a week, a Christian memorial dinner. Who could launch a missile at them? Who? Only absolute evil. More than 50 people died. Among them was a child, a boy, six years old. Separately, officials said a Russian strike on residential buildings in Kharkiv killed a 10-year-old boy and his grandmother while injuring 26 others. And Russian drones attacked a port in Ukraine's Odessa region early Friday, damaging a grain silo near the Danube River. Syria's health ministry says 89 people were killed and nearly 300 others wounded Thursday as a drone packed with explosives struck a military college graduation ceremony in the city of Homs. It was one of the deadliest strikes against Syrian forces in more than 12 years of civil war. No one has claimed responsibility for the attack, which Syria's government blamed on unspecified terrorist groups. Elsewhere, Kurdish fighters say recent Turkish airstrikes have killed at least 11 people across Kurdish control parts of northeastern Syria with five civilians among the dead. Turkey's intensified cross-border raids since Sunday, when a pair of attackers detonated a bomb outside government buildings in Ankara. Turkey blamed the attack on the outlawed Kurdistan Workers' Party and the closely affiliated Kurdish YPG militia, which is allied with the U.S. in its fight against ISIS. On Thursday, the Pentagon said one of its F-16 fighter jets shot down an armed Turkish military drone as it approached U.S. forces in Syria and ignored commands to change course. It was an unprecedented direct military exchange between Turkey and the U.S., two NATO allies. In Iran, activists are demanding justice for 16-year-old Armida Yerevan, 
Orr remains in a coma after an unexplained incident Sunday aboard a metro train near Tehran. Officials say Gervand suffered a medical episode, causing her to collapse and bump her head on the train door. Her friends and other eyewitnesses say members of the so-called Guardians of Hijab force entered into an altercation with her for not complying with Iran's strict dress code. This comes one year after the death of Masamini while in custody of Iran's morality police, which set off a nationwide uprising. In related news, this year's Nobel Peace Prize has been awarded to the imprisoned Iranian human rights activist Nargis Mohammadi, deputy head of Defenders of Human Rights Center, for her fight against the oppression of women in Iran. We'll have more on the Nobel Prize after headlines. Here in New York, a prisoner at the notorious Rikers Island jail was declared dead after he was found unresponsive in a cell Thursday morning. Manish Kunwar was just 27 years old. He's at least the ninth person to die in the custody of New York City Department of Corrections this year. In other news from New York, Frank James, who opened fire on a crowded subway train in Brooklyn in April of last year, received 10 life sentences Thursday. Each life sentence corresponds to an injured victim. No passengers were killed in the shooting. The judge said as he delivered the sentence, quote, each mass shooting constitutes an act of raw evil, he said. In a victory for voting rights, a federal court has selected a new congressional map in Alabama after the U.S. Supreme Court rejected a Republican gerrymandered map that diluted black votes. The voting age population of the new district is nearly 49 percent black and could send another Democrat to the U.S. Congress. And actor Julia Ormond is suing Harvey Weinstein for sexual assault. She's also suing Disney, Miramax and her former talent agency, CAA, for negligence. Ormond, whose lawsuit comes as part of the Adult Survivors Act, says Weinstein forced her to perform oral sex on him when she told her talent agents Brian Lord and Kevin Huvain, she said about the rape. They told her reporting it would damage her career and that she would not be believed. The CAA went on to drop her as a client. Ormond accuses Miramax and Disney of enabling and covering for Weinstein. Julia Ormond headlined major films in the 90s, but her career waned in the years after the assault and her complaint to her agents. Weinstein is currently serving a 23-year prison sentence in New York for rape. Earlier this year, he was sentenced to 16 years for separate rape and sexual assault charges in California. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We begin today's show with the Nobel Peace Prize. The chair of the Norwegian Nobel Committee in Oslo announced this year's winner earlier this morning. San Sendegi Azadi. Women, life, freedom. The Norwegian Nobel Committee has decided to award the Nobel Peace Prize for 2023 to Nargis Mohammadi for her fight against the oppression of women in Iran and her fight to promote human rights and freedom for all. Her brave struggle has come with tremendous personal cost. Altogether, the regime has arrested her 13 times, convicted her five times and sentenced her to a total of 31 years in prison and 154 lashes. Ms. Mohammadi is still in prison as I speak. This year's Peace Prize also recognizes 
the hundreds of thousands of people who in the preceding year have demonstrated against the theocratic regime's policies of discrimination and oppression targeting women. That was Beratrice Andersen, the head of the Norwegian Nobel Committee in Oslo, announcing that the imprisoned Iranian human rights activist Nargis Mohammadi has been awarded this year's Nobel Peace Prize. The announcement comes just a year after the death of 22-year-old Masamini, who died in Iranian police custody September 16th last year, after she was arrested by Iran's so-called morality police. Her death sparked months of protests in Iran and a severe crackdown by Iranian authorities. To talk more about this year's Nobel Peace Prize laureate, we're joined by Nagar Martazavi. She's an Iranian-American journalist, host of the Iran podcast, senior fellow at the Center for International Policy. We thank you so much for being with us, Nagar. Can you talk about the significance of this year's Nobel Peace Prize? Thanks for having me, Amy. Yes, sure. So this doesn't come as a surprise. I think after one year of sustained protests by Iranian women and young girls, and so many activists and ordinary citizens really putting their lives on the front line, risking their lives, about 500 protesters losing their lives, um, protesting for more freedoms and essentially in a, been part of a feminist uprising. And Nagas Mohammadi is really one of the most deserved activists when it comes to the fight for um, rights for women. Um, freedom for all human rights. She has done a lot of campaigning against the death penalty, execution, and so many other uh, parts of her long-term activism. And also, as it was discussed, at a great personal cost to herself and her family. So I think it's welcome news. This is going to energize, give new, uh, fresh energy to the activists and protest movement inside Iran. So tell us the story of Nargis Mohammadi, how she is now in prison, how she got there. Well, she's a longtime activist, human rights activist that has worked with different organizations, as you said, Human Rights Defenders, which also the previous, the only Nobel uh, Peace Laureate from Iran, Shirin Abadi, also worked with. And Nargis has really continued sort of that line of activism. She's been very vocal against the death penalty, as I said. She's launched many campaigns uh, against essentially changing the laws of execution and trying to abolish the death penalty in the Iranian legal system. She's fought for Iranian uh, women's rights, for um, political prisoners, for families, and herself has been a political prisoner, arrested many times, jailed to decades of prison in total, and also separated from her family. She, Her family has been lived, pushed into exile, including her two children, and she's been living separate from them, not being able to travel to see them. They live in exile. You're not able to travel to see her in Iran. And it's just a great personal cost. But she's been a longtime activist and has been detained, pressured, and sentenced for her activism many times and currently also is serving a prison sentence. And so she has fought for women's rights. She's also campaigned for the abolition of the death penalty and improvement of prison conditions. When is she expected to be out? And what kind of pressure do you think this puts on the Iranian regime? Well, this will be essentially a two-edged sword. At this 
uh, uh, first, it would generate anger from the hardliners and Iran, the Iranian regime, um, that, that essentially more and more attention is given to someone that they have been trying to portray as someone who is threatening national security and uh, has been essentially arrested for these security charges as they bring against uh, these activists. But then at the same time, I think it will generate global solidarity, it will generate sympathy, and it would raise the cost for keeping someone so high profile in prison, continuing to detain them, because uh, the attempt is to try to silence people and try to sentence and pressure them uh, in the dark without much attention. And this essentially prize will bring even more attention, I would say more power to Nagas and her activism and other activists uh, currently serving prisons in Iran. And hopefully at the end of the day, it will uh, empower her and help her with this kind of global attention and solidarity that it will bring. This comes 20 years after Shireen Abadi, uh, the women's rights activist in Iran, was also awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. Do you feel there's been progress, Nagar? Well, I think if we look at it, essentially looking at the long arc of history in a linear line, there has been. The Iranian society has changed a lot. I mean, just looking at the protests of the past year, women and young girls really risking a lot. It comes at a deadly price for many of these protesters and activists. But I also think what we're seeing, for example, the transformation of the Iranian public space when it comes to the issue of hijab, which is also something that Nagas has been opposing, the mandatory hijab laws. Uh, we've seen tremendous change and transformation in Iranian public space. I speak to sources, friends, journalists, activists inside Iran, and there are just so many women and girls right now courageously defying the mandatory hijab, this one discriminatory law against women, essentially gaining their bodily autonomy after the death of Masa Amini with the spark of that mass protest. So I think overall, there has been steps backwards, steps forward. But in general, the women's uh, rights and the various rights movement have been pushing forward and making progress in pushing the state um, back and demanding more rights. Well, I want to thank you, Nagar Murtazavi, for being with us um, to talk about this year's Nobel Peace Prize going to Nargis Mohammadi, the Iranian human rights activist who is currently in prison. Nagar is an Iranian-American journalist, host of the Iran podcast and senior fellow at the Center for International Policy. Coming up, we speak to the Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist David K. Johnston on Donald Trump's civil fraud trial, on why this may mean more to Trump than any others of the trials, as the judge could be leading to the dismembering of Donald Trump's financial empire. Stay with us. Shop at it. 
Music by the Iranian musician Marjan Farsad. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. As we turn now to Donald Trump's civil fraud trial here in New York, Trump's attorneys are expected to file a motion today to stay the trial pending an appeal of a judge's ruling last week that Trump and his two eldest sons, Eric and Donald Jr., had committed fraud by vastly overstating the assets of their company. The pretrial ruling puts the future of the Trump organization's real estate empire in jeopardy. Trump voluntarily attended the first three days of the trial. During comments to the press, he repeatedly attacked New York's Attorney General Letitia James for bringing the fraud case against him. On Monday, Trump assailed James, who is African-American, as a racist and called the trial judge, Arthur Engeron, a disgrace. On Wednesday, James denounced Trump's comments. What they were were comments that unfortunately fomented violence, and comments that I would describe as race baiting, and comments unfortunately that appeals to the bottom of our humanity. I will not be bullied. And so Mr. Trump is no longer here. The Donald Trump show is over. This was nothing more than a political stunt, a fundraising stop. On Tuesday, Judge Engeron placed a gag order on Donald Trump, the first on a former president, after he falsely claimed on social media that the judge's law clerk was the girlfriend of Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. The judge barred Trump from posting, sending emails or making public remarks about members of the judge's staff. To talk more about the opening week of the trial, we're joined by David K. Johnston, Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter who's reported on Trump for decades. He's the author of three books on Trump, including The Big Cheat, How Donald Trump Fleeced America and Enriched Himself and His Family. Johnston is also a distinguished visiting lecturer at Syracuse University College of Law. David, it's great to have you back with us. If you can start off by talking about the significance of this trial for Donald Trump. I mean, this is a civil trial. He didn't have to show up, though he falsely alleged who is being forced off the campaign trail to show up for this trial? Well, unlike the four separate criminal indictments where Donald is at risk of incarceration, going to jail, this is a civil trial. But Donald Trump is his money. That's the most important thing to understand about Donald. And, of course, his money is always being inflated along with other things. You know, he claims buildings are bigger than they are. He claims more money. And in this case, the judge has already ruled that Donald committed repeated calculated frauds. The issue in this trial, the principal issue in this trial, there's some minor facts, is how much must he disgorge because his frauds resulted in ill-got gains that he must give up. So talk about why this is so important to me. Another civil trial, um, right, the uh, sexual assault trial of E. Jean Carroll, he did not show up for. Well, that's right. And, and E. Jean Carroll similarly got a judge to rule there was such overwhelming evidence. There was no need to try the merits of the case. Donald Trump is a rapist. That's been established by another judge he already owes $5 million to the writer E. Jean Carroll. And now there's a second defamation case that she's brought. And there will be a trial only to determine, again, how much money he owes. In this trial uh, before Judge Engoron, Donald has had all of his business licenses revoked. The Trump Organization, his eyes wide open, blind trust he created when he became president. 
and the at least 500 Trump uh, legal entities, mostly limited liability companies, no longer have business licenses, and you cannot do business without a business license. The judge has appointed another judge, a retired judge, as a monitor to make sure that uh, Trump and his sons and the two executives who are in the case don't abscond with any of the money uh, until it's determined how much is there. Um, Ultimately, we will see the Trump organization, his umbrella group, uh, turned over to a receiver. This is similar to bankruptcy when you dissolve a company, but it's under New York State business law. It's not a bankruptcy case. His properties will be sold. Uh, Creditors and the government will get paid first. And if there's any money left at the end of the day, Amy, it will go to Donald Trump. So you're talking about properties. That's Donald Trump's residence in the Trump Tower on Fifth Avenue. That's one of the buildings. Is that right, David K. Johnston? One of the ones that also he, to say the least, inflated from 10,000 feet to 30,000 feet and why that matters, square feet. Well, he claimed the building was three times the size it was so he could justify an enormously higher value than it's worth. And Donald does this all time. Trump Tower's 58 stories. He'll tell you it's 68 stories. Uh, He owns a mansion um, on a large wooded area in Westchester County, about uh, a short drive from Manhattan. Uh, He's claimed it's worth as much as $291 million dollars. The most generous appraisal was $30 million, roughly a tenth of that, and it was based on the idea that he could carve it up into smaller estates and sell them off, and the local authorities have said, no, we're not going to allow you to carve it up. So the property's more likely worth something in the order of, uh, say, $10 million, and Donald's claims are 29 times that much, Amy. So Samuel Bankman-Fried is on trial right nearby here in New York. He was jailed before the trial for um, violating a gag order. Uh, President Trump has just had a bag, a, a gag order imposed uh, because, among other things, of what he just tweeted out in the midst of the trial, that the clerk who was sitting just feet from him right next to the judge was having an affair with Chuck Schumer. Um, can you talk about the significance of what it would mean if the judge found him guilty of violating that gag order? Could he end up in the same position as Samuel Bankman-Fried? He absolutely could end up remanded to jail. Uh, Donald is, I believe, for political reasons, trying to provoke one of the judges in his criminal or this civil case to send him to jail so that he can rally his supporters and say, see, the system is rigged. They're out to get me. I didn't do anything wrong, but they're going to shut me up. Uh, He threatened uh, General Milley, who just retired as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. That's not going to result in being remanded to custody because General Milley, who was a valorous infantryman in combat, is not being intimidated by Donald. I mean, he essentially said that Milley should be executed. Absolutely. He said he should be executed. Uh, The judge's secretary, however, or clerk, I'm sorry, the judge's clerk, has nothing to do with the merits of the proceedings. And the judge made it clear that you write or say anything about any person on my staff and there will be consequences. And I think he's made it pretty clear that Trump might get one more chance. But if he does it twice, uh, I assure you, then he's going to be remanded by this judge. 
And for people to understand how a decision has been made in parts of this trial, I mean, it is a bench jury. It's a bench trial. Uh, it doesn't go to a jury. Oh, and also President Trump um, lied when he said uh, he had wanted a jury trial because his lawyers never asked for one. Right. Well, Donald, I, I'm confident based on his public remarks, would be very concerned that a New York City jury, a Manhattan jury, could be very bad for him. They might rule very heavily against him. So his lawyers accepted uh, a bench trial, whether they did it by incompetence or intentionally, they agreed to this. So there's no question about that. He's been denied nothing by the judge. And the facts in this case are so overwhelming that uh, Letitia James put before the court showing that again and again and again, every time the Trumps valued a property, they overvalued. If there'd been a mixed bag, you know, now and then they overvalued things. Most of the time they were reasonable. Uh, that would be different. And, you know, Amy, imagine you own a $300,000 house. Well, maybe it's worth 270000 Maybe it's worth three hundred and thirty. But if you go to a bank and say, loan me money, uh, this house is worth $3 million or $30 million, that's just fraud. So all this trial is about, or primarily what this trial is about, is how much in damages does Donald Trump own for his and his son's years of fraud? So, David K. Johnston, you have written um, several books on Donald Trump. Is this case more important to them? He also fell off the, what, Forbes billionaire list. Um, than any of the other ones? Well, it's more important to Donald's mind because he grew up in a household with a father who was just a complete monster uh, who taught him and his other children that all that matters is getting the money. As long as you don't get arrested, uh, do whatever you need to do. There are no rules. You're special. The rules of law, the rules of decency, they don't apply to you. And so to Donald in his psyche, this is much more important. But the fact is that in the other cases, particularly the effort to overthrow the United States government on January 6th, he faces prison if convicted. Uh, but those are down the road a little bit. Right now, he's very concentrated on this. And as I said in the beginning, to Donald, Donald is his money. David K. Johnson, we thank you so much for being with us. Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter, co-founder of DC Report, author of three books on Trump, including The Big Cheat, How Donald Trump Fleeced America Enriched Himself and His Family. Next up, we speak to the attorney suing Columbia University and its affiliated hospitals on behalf of more than 300 more patients who say they were sexually assaulted by the former Columbia University gynecologist Robert Haddon over a span of decades. They say Columbia shielded the sexual predator. Stay with us. She just wants to be beautiful. She goes unnoticed. She knows no limits. She craves attention. She praises an image. She prays to be sculpted by the sculptor. Oh, she don't see the light that's shining deeper than the eyes can find it. Maybe we have made a blind soul. She tries to cover up a pain and cut her woes away. Cause cover girls don't cry after the face is made. But there's a hope that's waiting for you in the dark. You should know you're beautiful just the way you are. And you don't have to change a thing. The world could change its heart. No scars 
Stars to Your Beautiful by Alicia Cara. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Here in New York, as Manoush Shafiq made history Wednesday when she became the first woman to be inaugurated president of Columbia University, the ceremony was protested by well over 100 medical students wearing their white coats who joined with survivors of sexual abuse by the former Columbia obstetrician-gynecologist Robert Haddon. Dr. Haddon was sentenced to 20 years in prison this year for molesting his patients for over two decades, while Columbia ignored his patients who spoke out, undermined prosecutors, shielded the sexual predator, he said. Simran Chand, I'm a second-year medical student, um, and we're here to spread awareness about what's happened with Dr. Robert Haddon and the cover-up that Columbia has perpetuated for the past several decades. It's honestly disgusting, and we're here to demand accountability by our institution and to show that, as future medical professionals, we will not stand for this, and we want to make our voices heard. You protected Robert Haddon! You protected Robert Haddon! You protected Robert Haddon! You protected Robert Liz Hall, one of the reasons we are here today to notify the patients is because after November 23rd, victims of Robert Haddon, and there are thousands, will not be able to get justice or hold Columbia University accountable. They have been silent this entire time. I was a patient from 2002 to 2012, and I had to uh, find other resources and survivors myself. And luckily, some other women have seen me in the news, and that is the only reason why they know of Robert Haddon in jail. Another Dr. Haddon survivor who joined the medical students at the protest was Evelyn Yang. She's the wife of the former presidential candidate Andrew Yang. She has said Haddon sexually abused her during her first pregnancy in 2012. As soon as I walked through the gates, there were hundreds of medical students in their white lab coats um, on, in the aisles, in the walkways, on the lawns, and they were just um, spreading the word about how Columbia st has still failed to notify Dr. Robert Haddon patients um, that he is a convicted sex felon. So. I was overwhelmed with just, um, uh, you know, appreciation that they would take on this cause. Uh, and I, I realize it's not necessarily for us, for the survivors of Dr. Haddon, um, although it is very much in support of us because, you know, we, we, were, um, we were harmed by him and we, we believe that there are still hundreds, if not thousands, of Haddon patients um, who still do not know that he is a convicted sex offender, a sex predator, and they deserve to know. I mean, wouldn't you want to know if your OBGYN had sexually assaulted 500 other patients? Um, but I also think that it's um, especially meaningful that these are medical students because the prosecutors called Dr. Haddon a predator in a white coat. So they're walking around protesting wearing their white coats because... You know, they are going to swear an oath of no harm. And the harm in this case wasn't just perpetrated by Dr. Haddon, it was perpetrated by the university. So the expose in ProPublica exposed how they had covered up for him and enabled him for decades. And that's really um, perhaps an even 
bigger um, portrayal. And I, and I came today to really support the students in the community and their call for action. Everyone was chanting, notify the patients. Why is that so significant in this year? So in, it's significant because of the Adult Survivors Act that I, along with other survivors, fought very hard to pass, which opens up uh, a look back window, regardless of the statute of limitations. If you are a sexual assault survivor, in the state of New York, you have until November 23rd, 2023, to file a claim, and that window is closing uh, soon. So Columbia has an opportunity now, especially with the new president, to turn the page, to show that they care about patients, they care about the community in a meaningful way, backed with action. And if they can notify patients, um, then patients have a, they have a chance to, um, you know, take some action. And the significance of this being the inauguration of the first woman president of Columbia University. Well, President Shafiq, she has a gynecologist. She knows how vulnerable it is to sit in that chair and to, um, you know, uh, and, and, and she knows... She knows what it's like to be a woman, to be subjected to that um, regularly. And it wouldn't cross your mind to be violated by a doctor in that way. And she has a chance to reduce the harm that the previous administration perpetrated. And we are very disappointed that to date, she um, seems to be taking a, a page from the, the old playbook. And she's giving us a lot of, um, you know, I, we're, we're, we're so, we're sorry that you were hurt. Um, we're heartbroken for you. But she has still failed to take any meaningful action to notify the patients or um, commission a third party independent investigation into um, the cover up that led to Haddon abusing women for over 20, 30 years. That's Evelyn Yang, one of the first to speak out against Dr. Haddon. I spoke to Evelyn Yang as the first woman president of Columbia University was being inaugurated. Columbia University Irving Medical Center and New York Presbyterian Hospital reached two settlements with hundreds of Haddon victims in 2021 and 2022. This week, 301 additional former patients of Haddon, who alleged they were sexually exploited and abused by him, filed a new lawsuit that argues Dr. Haddon is, quote, the most prolific serial sexual predator in New York state history. For more, we're joined by the attorney who's been suing Columbia for over a decade to hold the university accountable for covering up Haddon's abuse, Anthony DiPietro. He's joining us from Salt Lake City, Utah. Also, uh, Evelyn Yang's attorney. Thank you so much for being with us. Um, and so as this was playing out on this beautiful blue sky day on Wednesday up at Columbia University, the victims of Dr. Haddon, together with well over 100 medical students in their white coats demanding that the university notify the patients. Anthony Pietro, you had just filed yet another lawsuit. Columbia's already paid out something like, what, um, a quarter of a billion dollars 
to patients of Haddon. Talk about this latest lawsuit. Yeah, that's correct, Amy, and and thank you. Um, You know, the recent filing that we made this past week brings the total victims and survivors of Columbia University and Robert Haddon to over 538 patients. Robert Haddon abused single women, married women, pregnant women, recent mothers. He even abused a 16-year-old who he previously had delivered at her first GYN visit. He literally is the most prolific serial sexual predator in the history of New York State. So explain, take us back to the beginning. I mean, on Democracy Now!, we've had a number of Haddon's patients on. Can you explain, there's two issues here. One is that Dr. Haddon sexually assaulted, was just found guilty, sentenced to 20 years in prison for sexually assaulting patients. But then there's the issue of what Columbia knew and when the university knew it. Uh, Talk about that, Anthony. Sure. So Columbia knew from the beginning what they were dealing with with Robert Haddon at every level. The chairperson, uh, the, the risk management people, they knew what they were dealing with. But for the past 36 years, they have been covering up this abuse from the public, from the patients, and even from the state prosecutors. So talk about the evidence that you have of this. In fact, you're in Utah right now. You're in Salt Lake City. Um, Wasn't it a patient now who is in Utah who said they notified Columbia decades ago? Correct. So one of our clients, Saul Evelyn Yang, um, on TV uh, a couple years ago and said and reached out to us and said, hey, you know, this guy abused me in 1993. And I wrote a letter to the chairman and the chairman wrote back. The chairman? I believe, you know, the chairman, the The chairman of the, the, uh, the, the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology wrote back acknowledged that she was abused and said he was going to take care of the problem, but he was going on vacation next week and he would deal with it when he got back. And he never did anything. We also had Lori Kenyuk on recently, uh, another of Dr. Haddon's patients. She's the patient who was in his office and to her horror, she felt him licking her. Um, she called her partner. She was very pregnant. Um, her partner raced to where she was and was calling the police uh, repeatedly. The police came to their home, then went right to the Columbia Hospital, where Dr. Haddon was, his office, and had him arrested. So Columbia absolutely knew at that point. Um, can you talk about that case? Yet he was back at work the next week after being arrested by police for sexual assault. Amy, it is outrageous. This guy was arrested at 4 p.m. on a Friday afternoon. Every person at the university, at the hospital, who needed to know, knew. Mary Dalton, who was the current and still is the current chairperson of obstetrics and gynecology, knew. John Ivanko, Haddon's direct supervisor, knew. Jane Booth, general counsel for Columbia University, knew. And what they did is they got their lawyers, they got the arrest vacated, and they let him back that next Tuesday so he can continue abusing patients. Five weeks later, 
is when he assaulted Evelyn Yang. So he came back and then went on to assault. Now, this is the question. How many people have been assaulted by Dr. Haddon? Um, you heard at that Columbia University protest um, the demand, the do medical students repeating over and over, chanting, notify the patients. Talk about the significance of this. The only entity that knows who all of Haddon's patients are is Columbia University, is that right, for all of the people he's seen for decades. What has been officially put out, aside from people seeing shows like Democracy Now! or reading um, ProPublica, the investigations, or seeing someone like Evelyn Yang on television, how do people know whether they can come forward in the significance of this one-year look-back that Governor Hochul signed off on of, um, of adult survivors being able to sue only, though, if they report this by November 23rd? In fact, E. Jean Carroll, uh, assaulted, sexually assaulted by President Trump, used this look-back to bring her lawsuit, the, the case, uh, the attack took place decades ago. Sure. Amy, make no mistake about this. These are Columbia University's patients. These weren't Robert Haddon's patients. These were patients of Columbia University. Columbia has the medical records. Columbia has the patient lists. Columbia did all the billing. In 2016, the state of New York ordered that all of Haddon's patients be notified that he lost his license. But Columbia is saying that the burden isn't on them, it's on Robert Haddon. That is outrageous. They weren't Haddon's patients, they were Columbia's patients, and Columbia's the only one that could possibly contact them. But they're refusing to do it. And that's why we're pushing. And here's why this is important, okay? It's not just about the Adult Survivors Act, although that is important. I've gotten countless phone calls from women who, you know, they happen to see this on the news or they see it on social media, and they call me and they're like, oh my God, this happened to me 15 years ago. And I've been carrying this around thinking that I was the only person, like maybe I did something wrong to invite this. They need to know that they're not alone. They shouldn't be having to carry this burden around with them for their entire lives because Columbia's administration refuses to send them a notification letter to let them know that Robert Haddon is a convicted sexual predator who they covered up for. I want to turn to Belkis Hall, who I also spoke to at Wednesday's protest at Columbia University. This is Belkis Hall. I was a patient from 2005 and 2000 to 2010. Um, I had asked my friends that had seen him if they thought there was something wrong, and they said no. So I continued to go, thinking it was natural. It wasn't only until last December that I found out that I have been abused over and over. He loved to give pain to his patients, and we thought that was normal. Let it not normalize it. If you ever feel there's something strong, listen to your gut yes. and speak out. Yes. Keep speaking out. Keep spreading the word because this is not over. Yes.
That was Belkis Hull speaking through a loudspeaker and speaking to, along with Laurie Maldonado, another guest we've had on, a victim of Dr. Haddon, uh, through a little bullhorn, uh, as they also thank the medical students for coming forward. Um, one of the things that Belkis Hull talked about was the pain that um, Dr. Haddon um, had uh, put these patients through, like Laurie Maldonado, who went for a checkup. She didn't know that most people don't go for endless checkups during their nine months, but um, Haddon kept calling her in two months before he gave birth. And as she lay on the t examining table, um, he put his hand up her and punched. And these women at Columbia talked about his inflicting pain, that that was part of his sickness and his crime. Anthony DiPietro, if you could comment on this. Yeah, so I've seen a lot of patterns, right? And this is absolutely one of them. He had this sadistic streak where he would inflict pain on women. Oftentimes he would do it if they weren't compliant with other things. And this was part of what he was doing. And again, Columbia knew the entire time. But instead of protecting patients, what they were doing is they were protecting a predator. So at this point, how has Columbia explained why they haven't sent a letter out to every one of the patients they know hadn't had? Right. There's no explanation for it. We have been pushing them for years, for five, six, seven years. Send out a letter to the patients, notify them that they didn't do anything wrong. They were exposed to this predator. But their excuse is that the burden is on Haddon, right? Because the order from the state was directed at Haddon. But again, these weren't Haddon's patients. And what is Columbia saying? Is Columbia saying that if Robert Haddon shows up at the medical records office and says, hey, give me, you know, the names and home addresses of all these women that I've been abusing since 1987, that Columbia is going to turn that information over to him? That's ridiculous. I wanted to go to another clip when we did speak to Lori Maldonado, the former patient of Robert Haddon between 2000, uh, who gave testimony at, um, at his sentencing. She described what happened to her when she was nine months pregnant. I was um, sexually assaulted by Robert Haddon two days before the birth of my child. I went in for, um, you know, my kind of, my, my checkup. My ex-husband was in the room with me, um, and we were just excited. I remember that in the office room, my, I went to the bathroom, and my mucus plug had dropped, so I was really imminent away, away from the birth, and I, we were really excited. Um, and Haddon came in the room, and he had a glimmer in his eye, and I thought, that that glimmer was that he was excited like me for the birth, but now I realize it was an opportunity for him um, to commit sexual assault. And um, he, you know, I, he later said, "Oh, you know, one more thing, I I, um, I need to check you." And he took me behind the curtain, um, away from my husband, and put me on the exam table. And what I thought was, you know, that he was going to check my cervix um, just to make sure that the baby was okay, um, but that's not what happened. Um, 
um, what did happen um, was Haddon um, used his hands to harm me and he stuck his fist inside of my vagina and it was so painful and I screamed um, and I cried out in pain and um, he abruptly left the room. Uh, my husband uh, at the time uh, came over uh, to me, checked on me. He said, are you okay? Um, and I was like, no, I'm not okay. And then he asked me a really important question. He said, do you feel violated? And I said, yes. That's Lori Maldonado. To see the whole interview with her, one of Dr. Haddon's uh, survivors, you can go to democracynow.org. Anthony DiPietro, we want to thank you very much for being with us, attorney representing women who are sexually abused by former Columbia University obstetrician, gynecologist Robert Haddon. Um, DiPietro has filed a new lawsuit against the university um, and its affiliated hospitals on behalf of an additional 301 patients who were allegedly sexually assaulted by Haddon. Also, this related news in California, George Tyndall, the former University of Southern California gynecologist accused of sexual abuse by hundreds of students, was found dead at his home this week. USC agreed to pay over a billion dollars in settlements to survivors. Survivors have said Tyndall raped or forcibly touched them, made racist and misogynistic comments while he sexually abused them. Tyndall was awaiting trial and out on a $1.3 million bail. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We end today's show with one of the 75,000 healthcare workers with Kaiser Permanente who walked off the job this week in the largest strike of healthcare workers in U.S. history in California and Oregon and Washington, Colorado, Virginia, and Washington, D.C. Talks have failed to yield a new agreement as workers seek higher pay, better staffing, improvements in their pension plans and other benefits. For more, we're joined on the picket line in Clackamas, Oregon, by Kevin Darden, a patient access representative and a member of the union's local bargaining team at Kaiser Permanente Sunnyside Medical Center. And Meg Nimi, we're going to begin with you, president of SEIU Local 49. Meg, can you talk about the significance of this three-day strike and if you've gotten concessions from Kaiser Permanente? Yeah, I mean, this is a historic strike. Uh, 75,000 Kaiser Permanente workers walking off the job to tell Kaiser executives that it's time to end the short staffing crisis. Can you tell us where you are right now as we look at you in the dark because it's so early in the morning? I'm out front of Kaiser Sunnyside Medical Center here in Clackamas, Oregon. Our members are setting up their strike line this morning, um, getting ready to begin our picketing activities. We want to bring Kevin Darden into the conversation, a patient access representative member um, of the union's local bargaining team at Kaiser Permanente Sunnyside Medical Center. Kevin, can you talk about your demands and the significance of this largest strike of healthcare workers in U.S. history? Yes, good morning. What we're here today is we're asking our Kaiser executives to bargain in good faith with us, the frontline healthcare workers. We have the proposals and we have the solutions to solving Kaiser's short staffing crisis. And we're just asking them to come to us and meet with us. We have those solutions and we're hoping they can come and bargain in good faith. Mm -hmm. And can you talk, Magnimi, about the strategy of doing this three-day strike? 
Yeah, our, the Kaiser members are out here taking action to get Kaiser to listen to us around patient care, make sure that the, the patients are getting the care that they actually need. And our members made a decision to say, you know, we're going to walk off the job. We want to do this for a short amount of days, for three days. But we have let Kaiser executives know that if we cannot come to an agreement that solves the short staffing crisis, that we'll be out here again. And can you talk about the scale of the strike? Who's involved? Uh, Talking about nurses, medical technicians, pharmacists. Talk about who's out on the strike and also your concern about continuing to care for patients. Um, Right now, out on this strike across the country are healthcare workers that have been essential workers from across the hospitals and clinics. So we have medical assistants, licensed practical nurses, housekeepers. There are pharmacists. There are dietary workers. There are dental workers. There are literally hundreds and thousands of different workers who are often the people that are closest to delivering patient care. They're the first people that you see. They're the people that are right next to you at the bedside. Um, and all of them have come out here because they care so much about their patients. And they're really concerned about how they've seen a deterioration of care, a deterioration of patients being able to get access to care. And they felt like it was very important that they took this strong stand so that Kaiser Permanente executives will actually turn force and reprioritize patient care. Kaiser Permanente is the largest nonprofit healthcare organization in the United States. Just how big is it, Magnemi? No, Kaiser Permanente is a giant healthcare institution. They, we know that they made over $3 billion in profits already this year. They have $114 billion invested in the stock market. They have a lot of resources. Um, for employees that are represented by our coalition of unions, there are 85,000 Kaiser Permanente employees that are represented in this coalition. There are 75,000 of those workers who are, had contracts expired and were able to take this action. And Kevin Darden, can you tell us the response of people in Oregon around you in Clackamas, the public officials, and what this three-day strike has meant? Yeah, so over the past uh, two days that we've been out here, we've had state representatives come out and join us here on the picket line. We've had providers, nurses, community members, Kaiser patients come to us. And, you know, they're driving on this boulevard behind me. They're honking their horns. They're giving us hearts. They're giving us a thumbs up. The community knows the struggles that Kaiser's going with the staffing issues. They know that they can do better, and they're giving us their full support. So we're proudly out here. We're here for our patients. We're here for our community. Kaiser can do better. And patient support, the level of patient support, Kevin, as you demand uh, more staff so that more patients can be dealt with and wait on uh, uh, um, shorter lines. Yes, that's correct. You know, we saw here in the Northwest our urgent care and pharmacy hours slash. They used to be open until nine. Now they're open till seven. And so our members are feeling that when members call our appointment centers and they tell them to see their primary care provider is four to eight weeks out. You know, that's that's a serious issue for them. They, they need care. We're known for our five star quality care. And that's what our community is demanding is Kaiser go back to its roots and provide that excellent service that they're known for. Kevin Darden, want to thank you for being with us. Patient access representative. 
conservative member Thank of you. the union's local bargaining team at Kaiser Permanente's Sunnyside Medical Center in Clackamas, Oregon, and Meg Nemi, president of SEIU Local 49. They were both joining us from the picket line. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks so much for joining us.